As you know, our speaker tonight is Dr. Bilal Wahab from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, where he focuses on Iraq, the Northern Kurdish area, Iran, and other local problems. Uh, he's taught at the American University of Iraq in Soleimani, and uh, he earned his PhD here from George Mason University, an MA from American University, one of the first Iraqis to come here on a Fulbright, Fulbright grant to study. He earned his BA at Saladin University in Erbil, where he also uh, taught. He has written prolifically on subjects regarding the region, including most recently Kurdish reactions to their abandonment in Syria. As protests explode, Iraq must get serious about reform. And, and then just this week out from the American Enterprise Institute, uh, what will it take to repair Middle Eastern economies? And this evening, uh, Dr. Wahab will be addressing us on the subject of uh, freedom in Iraq versus um, oppression from Iran. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Wahab. Thank you, Bob, for that uh, very kind introduction, and thank you all for being here. Uh, it's, uh, it's an honor. Uh, thank you for inviting me, and uh, it's good to, uh, to meet all of you and to see some old friends. Um, Iraq, uh, Iraq and the U.S., I think, have a history together now. We're kind of bound, uh, whether we like it or not. The United States uh, tried to forget Iraq, uh, get away, escape. Uh, actually did it in 2011 and completely withdrew. And somehow Iraq managed to pull the United States back. It looks like a scene from the Godfather movie. Um, and for better or for worse, uh, the United States, uh, we can debate the logic, the rationale for the invasion. Um, someone was asked about his assessment of the French Revolution, and he said that's too soon to call. I think it's very, very soon to call the uh, what the United States did in Iraq. Uh, it's the big elephant. I am Kurdish, so uh, my views of it are, are is one of, uh, of liberation from the tyranny of Saddam Hussein. Iraq was a big prison, and uh, the future was bleak. Uh, we, could, we did not even have the space and the freedom of looking at the future. Now, I also sympathize with um, you know, other segments of the Iraqi society that were perhaps uh, less harmed by the regime, or perhaps even benefiting from that regime. So I think as a Kurd uh, who survived chemical attacks, who lived, I lived my, my childhood in a refugee camp uh, because my family had to uh, flee Saddam Hussein's oppression, uh, I should have the right of calling, um, getting rid of Saddam Hussein a liberation, but I also give someone else who did not benefit as much uh, uh, from the uh, from the invasion, whatever other description uh, they have, and and that is my introduction to uh, the the discussion of freedom uh, and liberty, and that is uh, that is the gift that removing Saddam Hussein, the opportunity that removing Saddam Hussein um, uh, gave us. Now 
We can engage in blame games, as I said, uh, that's a history that is still being written uh, and the story is not finished, but uh, Iraq is one place where you can have, uh, where you can have three debates. Uh, Iraq is a place where you have uh, different political parties, in fact, too many political parties, if you ask me. Uh, you have competitive politics. But because of the weak nature of the state, it was very easy for a corrupt elite with the help of an outside force, a nefarious neighbor, Iran, to take control of this uh, government and then try to use it not for the interests of the public and the masses and the citizens, but for other interests, which I'll uh, refer to and probably elaborate uh, on uh, a little bit more. But that opportunity of, of Iraqis having agency, uh, it's, a, it's a Middle Eastern cliche to blame anything and everything that happens on someone else. You know, the, the, the country where the most uh, elaborate, or the part of the world where the most elaborate conspiracy theories are concocted. But what we see today in Iraq, particularly with this protest movement that's going on, and that's what I'm here to, to talk mainly about, I think the Iraqi youth in particular, 60% of Iraqis just do not know Saddam Hussein. They never lived under Saddam Hussein. They, they, they're not familiar with that regime. So they're not really looking backwards, they're really looking forward. And to that young, web-connected, globally aware um, youth, this Iraq doesn't really make sense. Uh, an Iraq that uh, has a, for 2019 alone, the budget was $100 billion, that's with a B. A country that is the second largest, uh, OPEC is second largest oil producer. Spent over a trillion dollars since 2005, where the Iraqi government uh, regained sovereignty. So this Iraq doesn't make sense. Uh, Baghdad uh, c constantly is voted one of, the, one of the worst cities and capitals to live in. Basra, which accounts for 80% of uh, Iraqi oil, doesn't have potable water. Last year, uh, 7,000 people were hospitalized because they, could not, because they, they were contaminated, they, they drank contaminated water. There, is no, uh, there hasn't been reliable electricity, 24-7 electricity in a country where, where the heat in summer uh, is above 120 uh, Fahrenheit. It, the, the country doesn't make sense. And they look at Kuwait and look at uh, Saudi Arabia, and anywhere else you look. You look at your own, the country's own past, it doesn't make sense. The, the, um, the star of this protest movement is this three-wheel um, cart that uh, they, they, they call it the tuk-tuk. It's basically a mo like a, a, a three-wheel uh, bicycle or tricycle uh, that has a cover and it, it's used for transportation between one part to the other. And uh, it, it's called the revolution of the tuk-tuk because those tuk-tuk actually play the, the function of ambulances. And so it's become a, a symbol of the protest. But just think about that for a second. The, why should the capital of a country that uh, produces about five million barrels of oil a day not have trams or metro systems or double-deckers, which was the, the hallmark of Iraq in the 1970s and 80s, but rely on tuk-tuk for public transportation. So this Iraq, 
You know, in the past, if people didn't know what they're missing, okay, oppression could have worked. But in this day and age where people look at how the Emiratis live and how the Qataris live and how the Saudis live, this young Iraqi generation is not happy, is not satisfied. And also when it looks into the future where the political elite is taking the, the country, they're not happy with it. And they want to take matters into their own hands. And I, I take back, I go back to the question of agency. They're not saying this is America's fault because America, you know, topples Saddam Hussein. That's not the message you hear. Now that doesn't mean they, they like America, not necessarily. And they look at Iran. Yes, they blame Iran. They blame Iran very much for a variety of reasons that I'll get to. But let me uh, conclude the point about agency. And they look at their political elite, and they're not happy with them. But they're not waiting for, you know, for the Americans to come and get rid of the regime, as, like, for example, my generation or my father's generation were waiting for some miracle, some, someone to come and get rid of Saddam Hussein. They're not waiting for someone to come and do that for them. Or like ISIS comes and like, takes a third of the country and then you're waiting for some international coalition to come together and then help you get rid of ISIS. They're taking matters into their own hands. They're blaming those who have a hand in their suffering and they burn the consulates of the countries behind them. But other than that, they're not waiting for some savior. They say, this is our country and we need to take it back. We appreciate any help, but we're not gonna wait until it comes. And to me, that is the main point of this protest movement. And by the way, I can say the same thing about the Lebanese protest movement. And this is new in the Middle East. It's, we saw glimpses of it in the Arab Spring, but this is different than the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring were the you know, societies that wanted the government that represents them. But the Iraqi government is, I would posit, quite representative. What does representation mean? Is it elected? Yes, it's an elected government. Does it have Kurds? Yes. Does it have Shia? Yes. Does it have Sunnis? Yes. Does it have religious minorities? Yes, it is a representative government. What is missing is it's not an accountable government. It's not a government that's accountable to its own citizens. It's a government that is accountable to, and I have a laundry list, it's accountable to the parties. Because it's the political party that ensures that um, uh, a politician is elected into parliament. So when the parliamentarian goes into parliament and he's a, uh, he's a representative, he doesn't feel accountable to a constituency, but accountable to a political party. So therefore, his daily mission is to appease that political party, which put him there, or her, put her there, and will ensure that he or she will stay there. That's one. But also there is the question of fear, of malicious. Uh, for the longest time, the challenge for Iraq has been for Iraqi state and the Iraqi army to control the enrolling militias and put all of the arms under the state control. But with time, especially with the war against ISIS and the you know, horrendous uh, tragedy of uh, you know, $15 billion worth of American equipment and some, some 60,000 Iraqi soldiers just running overnight and leaving a third of the country to a ragtag terrorist group over, you know, in pickup trucks. That was a huge embarrassment for the, for the Iraqi army, for, for the state. And then the militias came and they stopped the uh, onslaught of, the, uh, of ISIS. But then they really milked that, uh, that uh, 
that help that they had, and it was a positive role that they played in fighting ISIS, by translating that into the largest bloc in the Iraqi parliament. So translating the military victory, the role that they played in the military victory. I mean, the Iraq alone could not have defeated ISIS without the help of the international coalition led by the United States, because that kind of warfare requires uh, uh, air support, which the Iraqi military doesn't have. But nonetheless, they take credit, and they are due credit, for participating in liberating a third of Iraq that fell to ISIS. But then they managed to translate that military victory into a political uh, victory at the ballot box. That was in the 2018 elections. And won about the largest bloc in parliament, the second largest bloc, uh, ended up uh, being uh, formed by the militias, by the parties that have militias. And then they were in the process of translating, you know, the, basically building the third leg of, of the stool of power, which is economic power, by then holding on to contracts in that ministry or that part of the government. And that would have been the future. And I think the Iraqi youth, the Iraqi citizens, so right through that, that that is the game plan. And that is not a fictitious game plan. That, that's basically what the IRGC does in Iran. It's a militia, it's there to protect the, the regime, and they have basically a parallel economy, and therefore they are almost separate from the state, they're not accountable like the state is, but if they're in danger, they have their own guns and their own weapons to, um, to protect their own, their own interests. And this is while a fifth of the Iraqi population lives in poverty, and all of those lack of services that I talked about. Let me also make a point about corruption. Corruption in Iraq is quite detrimental. Usually in a country, when you talk about corruption, it's about you know, the police officer asking you for a bribe, or you needing to grease some palms to get a, you know, a driver's license um, or a business license uh, you know, process. I mean, usually that's the kind of thing, I mean, as bad as it is. But that's not the kind of corruption that Iraq suffers from. The kind of corruption that Iraq suffers from is a, national, is a matter of national security. Let me go back to the example that I gave earlier. How come that the Iraqi military, with all the US training and the US equipment, could not defend a third of the country, which lost it to about 3,000 ISIS fighters on the back of pickup trucks? What happened there? Well, you can, if, if I were a, a security expert or a military expert, there would be military explanations, and I have colleagues who have written about, uh, about that. The book that you kindly alluded to actually has a chapter about um, generally Middle Eastern militaries. And uh, uh, my friend Ken Pollock has a very good book uh, called Armies, uh, Armies of Sand that talks about why, you know, why Middle Eastern armies lose despite the training and the technology and the aid and all that. But beyond that, one of the answers of why the Iraqi army, why Iraq lost a, th a third of the country so quickly, the answer actually lies in corruption, in political corruption. So let me take a step back to explain how corruption in Iraq works. The government is formed on a sectarian political or ethno-sectarian basis. Iraqis have a nice word for it. It's called muhasasa. Muhasasa basically means div uh, dividing or divvying up shares. Everyone gets a share. What that basically means is 
we have an election. Iraq has over 200 political parties. Everyone who manages to have uh, a few seats in parliament therefore has a seat literally at the table. Uh, then they sit down and they say, okay, let's carve up the government. Here's a big cake. It's a hundred billion dollar cake, quite literally, right? That's, that's the budget. Okay, so how do we do that? All right, so that political party has 40 seats. That political party has 30 seats. That one has two seats. All right, so we come up with a formula. It's almost like back of a napkin formula. So every 10 seats is a ministry. Uh, every five seats is a deputy minister. Every, you know, if you have two seats, that's like a director general. And then that trickles down all the way to the level of school principal. So imagine governing in such a system. Who, whose loyalty, like if you're a minister, you know, who, who are you catering to? Who are you serving? Do you have time to serve like a constituency or a public? At the end of the day, this is an oil state. Let me make another academic point, perhaps. This is an oil state. In an oil state, you've all heard about the resource curse or the oil curse. My revenue is completely isolated, me, the you know, acting minister, is, is completely isolated from the citizens. Like in a country like this one, if I were a congressman, I would say, I went to China on your dime. What, I, what I'm referring to is that you pay your taxes, you fund my government that allows me to be a diplomat or an army officer or you know, a, a bureaucrat or a school teacher or, police or, or, or a sheriff, right? It's your tax uh, money that allows the government to run. That's not the case in these, in these petro-states. I sell oil, and my revenue comes from oil. And now you're asking me for a piece of that oil money that I made by signing a contract or by selling the oil. So in a way, instead of me looking at you as the source of my, my income, and therefore I'm accountable to you, the view, just naturally, the view of, uh, uh, of, a, of a leader in a petro state to the citizens, toward the citizenry is, you're all leeches. I'm in government, I'm selling the oil, I'm making the money, I could take it all, but now I have to spend some, some of it on you. Now, if you're a dictator, that's what you do, right? You spend 20%, 30%, whatever, 80% on some government, government operations and you pocket the rest. Because at the end of the day, you have to govern, you have to appease the society, you have to gain legitimacy to win over segments of your society. Now, if you're a multi, and, and that is basically the model of the monarchy, right? That's what happens. It's a, it's a social contract in which I provide you with free everything. Free healthcare, free education. Uh, you don't actually have to even work that hard because I'm bringing outside workers from around the world to do the work for you. And in return, what I'm, what I'm asking you is to just Shut up and let me rule. I mean, in a way, that's the, the very crude version of, of, uh, of many of the rule in the petro states. But Iraq is a democracy. We want it to be a democracy. No one has that kind of central authority and central power, like Saddam Hussein did, or like a king does, or like an emir does, to do that. So then how do you rule? Well, some of that money has to actually trickle down into maintaining those 40, 50 seats or 30 seats or the two seats that you got. So how do I do that? If I'm a king and I live in a monarchy, I just have an army, right? And I provide all of those free services. The free services should co-opt, it's called co-optation and coercion. 
should, should do the job, should appease the large swaths of society. Because at the end of the day, what do people want? They want to have a living, they want to have good schools, and if you can provide that, you can gain the legitimacy because you're providing for your people. And that is one of the reasons why the petro states, the, the petro monarchies, are quite stable countries. They manage to weather the Arab Spring, and uh, they don't have the kind of legitimacy challenges that other countries have, other countries as in republics have. But in a place like Iraq, and, and of course, for the few that are not happy with the system, they can either escape and run away and be, uh, get an asylum somewhere, or there is a security apparatus that's going to you know, ensure that dissent doesn't escalate. That was basically what Saddam Hussein did. Like, if you lived under Saddam Hussein and you, you know, laid low and you didn't really ask for, you know, freedom of speech or political freedom or religious freedom, life wasn't all that bad. I mean, uh, unless you were Kurdish, which didn't matter. The poisonous gas didn't really differentiate between, you know, who's pro-Saddam and who's not pro-Saddam. But this new Iraq is different. No one has that kind of military power to maintain control over the entirety of the country. So if you cannot rely on force and coercion, then you have to basically spend more of your money on wielding this patronage network, on appeasing people, on winning over hearts and minds, quite literally. And that's what's, what's been happening. So every political party has a TV. Every political party has, uh, has to, when, when they get a ministry, right, they hire their cronies, that's the, where the word cronyism comes from, all of their supporters into that ministry, and then the contracts of that ministry goes into companies that are owned by party leaders. And that's how you literally grease the wheel. So how much can that trickle down? Not much, because uh, at some point, the money is going to stop. At some point, you have to actually build roads, right? Because you can give people jobs. And Iraq is one of the countries that has you know, uh, a creation. It's called ghost employees. A ghost employee is someone who earns a paycheck without actually showing up to work. When I tell that to my American friends, they say, oh, that's beautiful. It could be. <laughs> but how many ghost employees can you hire? I have a friend who, owns a, who, who works at a bank, who manages a bank, and he says he has more people on his payroll than actual chairs in his bank. Why? Because someone comes, gives him a roster. These are, you know, you have 100 additional employees that you have to hire and pay. But that system has run out of steam, right? Because the Iraqi education system, just, just sheer uh, population growth, right? Um, I don't have the number on top of my mind, but um, um, I believe it's 700,000 people who graduate universities every year. Now, the government needs to create 700,000 jobs every year just to break even. Now, at some point, the government is going to run, run out of chairs, even if your oil production increases or doubles, you're not going to be able to manage because it's not a small Gulf state. It's actually a, a large country. So running out of steam, uh, you have this large swath of society that feels left out. And that's why they are on the street. They basically say, this system might have worked for a decade, decade and a half, but we look into the future and there is no way that this is sustainable. So we don't want a country that, uh, that caters to political parties, a country that caters to sects uh, and to our very basic identity. We want a country, we want a country, literally. And that is the main slogan, Nuridu Watan. We want a homeland. That's the main slogan of the protests.
Now, there is another slogan which is, which is quite popular, which is Iraq, Iraq, Hurra, Hurra, Iran, Barra, Barra. Iraq is free and Iran, get out. Why is that anger targeted at Iran? Now, if you, if you watch some of the Iraqi TV stations, and again, part of the patronage is you hire people, you have the contracts, and you have a TV station that you know, makes you look good, and anywhere you go, you know, there's, a, there's a report about you know, His Excellency, or, or His Highness did this and did that, so that way you, you always are on people's faces, quite literally. Now, that system has, has as I said, run its course, that there are not enough jobs, and the people look around, and 15 years has really done little in terms of public services and accountability. They look into the future, they don't see any hope because uh, the trends are negative. The trends are negative. Corruption is becoming increasingly endemic, and militias are becoming more, a bit becoming stronger than the actual state. Because remember, as I said, they're capitalizing on on the failure of the Iraqi military to defend Iraq when ISIS came. They tried to ignore how the Iraqi military actually regained its stature by, by liberating those areas. So they keep focusing on the failure, but not acknowledging how the Iraqi military regained its strength and, and, and its valor. And I didn't finish how, the, how it was in question of national security, because as part of that patronage, the former prime minister of Iraq, Maliki, appointed political loyalists as, as commanders, not uh, on a meritocratic base, not capable military leaders, but loyal military leaders. Now, if you are there and you're in charge and you have all of the stars in and you've never fought a day in your life and someone says, boo, the first thing you're going to do is run because you know how to fight. And then when the commander runs, what do soldiers do? I mean, right? I mean, that's the whole idea of... And, and so that's why you referred to earlier that corruption in Iraq is not the matter of greasing palms, it's a matter of national security. And I can tell you examples and examples about, I'll, I'll give just one more example. By the way, who has been to Iraq? Just raise your hand. Have you been through a checkpoint in which, you know, um, a soldier would like walk by your car with a machine, like something with a wire to the, to the a battery and has an antenna walking up by your car like this. Have, have you, has anyone seen that? Okay, you've seen that. So basically it's a, it's a little black thingy with a, with a wire antenna and they walk by your car like this. And that's supposed to be a bomb detector. That's supposed to be a bomb detector. Now that machine, and, and you know that you know, tens of thousands of Iraqis died uh, during the height of the sectarian war and the terrorism at the hand of Al-Qaeda and, and, and other uh, militias. Uh, and the main tool of death were car bombs. So an official <coughs> imported those machines as bomb detectors. And they were, I think it cost like $1.2 billion. And they were deployed throughout all of these checkpoints in Iraq as bomb detectors. Now, these cars pass through these uh, checkpoints, the dude with the thingy would, would walk by, and car bombs kept blowing up. Those were not bomb detectors. Those were golf ball detectors. They were painted black and sold to the Iraqi government as bomb detectors. It's not just someone making a buck. It's, I know, out of, out of some bogus machine. It's someone making a buck at the expense of thousands of innocent Iraqis. When I say corruption is a matter of national security, that's what I'm talking about. And that is the kind of corruption that these young protesters are protesting. Today, over 400 people have been killed, 
and over 15,000 injured. And yet today, anyone else, people would have been home and would have said enough, enough. Today was the largest protest in Iraq yet. It started on October 1st. Within, within a week, there were 152 people killed. Today, it's over 400 people. And today, it was the largest protest. And the question was whether they stormed the Green Zone or not. So one has to respect the resilience. One has to respect the, uh, uh, the, the, the valor, the courage of the Iraqis who basically say the only way uh, forward is through and they, have to, they, they want to practice the democracy, the freedom that they have found, not because it's an American invention, not because America wants them to, not because Germany wants them to, or the UN wants them to. Actually, they want to reshape Iraq uh, on their own terms, and they want a government that's responsible to them. And they're angry at Iran because Iran doesn't want that, and it's the one that is most actively trying to undermine the protests. That's why the first week of protests, it was all about jobs and services, and then Iran and pro-Iran militias started shooting at people, literally sniping them from rooftops, and then the second most popular slogan after We Want the Country is, Iraq is free, and Iran must get out. So wish Iraq is luck. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Okay. Yes, sir. <coughs> I could do the, the same, but it's for the it's for the recording. Pressure for the groups to say that they don't like the government that's there, but I haven't heard anything in terms of proposals for what they do want. Yes, that's fair enough. So, what does we want the country mean? That's a slogan. That's not a that's not a plan. And that's right. And I've been thinking about that a lot at my day job. Uh, it could be frustrating at times because the brutality of the crackdown and the lack of clarity of what the protesters actually want uh, obviously is in favor of the better organized part. But it's December 10th and this protest started October 1st. So these guys are up to something. I don't know, but they're up to something. They're not giving up. It means that they have an eye on the prize. And perhaps the prize is reshaping this dynamic, reshaping the rela that, that, that social contract. It's not, it's not enough for you to, be, to represent me. You have to be accountable to me. Uh, reshaping the, the nature of the electoral system. Some of the main asks is, this government must go. And we hate political parties. <coughs> and anyone who ever served in an Iraqi government since 2003 uh, must not be prime minister. Just give us a fresh face, someone that we don't know. And now one of the demands is to form an electoral government, an, an, an electoral um, system in which individuals can run. Not political parties, but individuals. If you're popular in your neighborhood, you should run. Now, as a political you know, scientist, we can debate the merits of that and you know, how that would work. But basically, they know what they don't want. It's a revolt against the current system. It's a revolt against all of these parties who are in this big tent governments. Everyone is in it together, and no one's accountable for anything. You know, um, 
I describe it. I describe the Iraqi system as a system that you know offers many hands and rings to kiss, but no face to punch when things go wrong. They don't know. They don't know who, who to blame, right? So now they're basically saying, all right, you know, uh, curse on all houses. So they, like literally last year in Basra, they went and torched one party office after the other. It's not because we hate this one and not that one. I said, you guys, you guys are all in it together, right? And you go and, you know, you curse each other. And now that, you know, we're losing and then we're going to basically all unite against you. You know, it's like, a, uh, you know, the prisoner's dilemma and then, the, the, the good version of it is um, there were two canned soup companies that were running ads against each other. You know, this one's saying that soup has that ingredient and that causes cancer. And then the other uh, soup company comes, the canned soup company and says, well, that soup company, you know, has that ingredient and that causes whatever, heart disease. And then while the population and people watch these ads, what happened? People started avoiding canned soup, because it turns out that canned soup is bad, whether it's that company or the other company. So that's what's been happening, because with this competitive environment, these guys have been you know, telling on each other, on each other's bad behavior and corruption, so there is a lot of transparency, but they didn't know who to hold accountable. And accountable for basically saying, you, we want you to fix this, because you go to the prime minister, he says, um, I'm just put here by these parties. Like, usually in a parliamentary system, just to kind of to give you the, the, the epitome of, of lack of accountability. In a parliamentary system, who becomes the prime minister? Usually the head of the largest bloc in parliament. How many members of parliament does the current prime minister of Iraq has? Zero. Because they could not agree on who should be prime minister, so they just brought this you know, uh, politician, who's actually quite capable, but then he didn't manage this crisis well. And they put in prime minister. So a prime minister that doesn't have any constituency in the parliament, the very essence of an accountability, because, and, and powerlessness. While all of the uh, you know, nefarious activities, all of those contracts, all of those shady businesses uh, go on. So they want a face. So sometimes when, when they talk about uh, what they want, it comes across as they want someone with whom the buck stops. And that sounds like authoritarianism, like a dictator. And it makes sense, because that's the only form of government that works in the Middle East somehow, right? But then you also, then they catch up and say, no, 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 we tried that. That didn't really work, because that's, that's what Saddam Hussein was. Yes, he started out well. I mean, don't get me wrong, Saddam Hussein almost built every hospital in the country. But the problem with people who linger in government and in power, and, and there, is a, there is a merit to these term limits, is that if they stay too long, they see it, they live long enough, and they stay in power long enough to see all of those hospitals and roads that they built all destroyed. And that's literally what happened uh, to Saddam Hussein. So then they go back and they correct themselves. But I think for now, Iraqi political elite has a, has a, um, a Mary Antoinette moment in which, you know, when the people, why are the people protesting? Like, aren't they happy that they're, you know, they're Shia and they're happy. They can go and do Arba'een. Isn't that enough? And the Iraqis say, no. Uh, isn't it enough that Saddam Hussein is gone? Who is Saddam Hussein? We don't know Saddam Hussein. Well, open your eyes. You've been, you, you guys have been, have been running the, the, the country. So, in a way, they think that this too shall pass. And I think before we understand what is the plan, uh, it's, it's important for the political elite to wake up.
that business as usual is not sustainable. This is not just one of those summer <coughs> protests that will, you know, start with the heat and will go away as long as, 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 as soon as the weather changes. This is serious and the people require change. And that awakening is happening because for the first time, Grand Ayatollah Sistani, uh, who usually tries to be excluded and, and apolitical, he is under pressure from the street because ultimately he is not accountable to a political party. He's accountable to the, to the Shia population. That's where he, he, he gets his, his eminence, his, his stature. And he has been increasingly interventionist. And he is the one who's now, who finally called for the resignation of the prime minister. So that's one part of the story, one part of the answer. But the, there's also another more nefarious part. The protesters do not have the luxury to organize. Because the minute they organize, there will be, there will be faces to punch. And even now, and you saw that the State Department actually had, a, had a issued statements about it, those who emerge as civil society leaders, as activists, as people who have a say within the protest movement, unfortunately they either get kidnapped, many of them have been assassinated, there are footage of some of them being assassinated, so even if there is organization within the movement, within the protest movement, they're afraid of coming out. So it's all about being leaderless and, and being grassroots, and they're afraid because it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. So they have to keep the momentum because if leaders emerge, those leaders will be targeted. And again, activists have been targeted and assassinated, uh, including young girls who just go home from Tahrir Square and they get picked up by, by motorcycles and, and cars. So it's all about keeping the pressure on the government to um, basically convince them that business as usual is not sustainable and uh, getting the attention of the international community, for example, the United States. I mean, um, it's not much, but it sends the right signal, has sanctioned uh, four recently last week four Iraqis, three militia leaders, and a very corrupt uh, businessman, uh, basically to encourage other countries, but also encourage Iraqis to see a different incentive structure. The incentive structure in Iraq for, for a politician is, if I do the right thing, there is no one out there to help me and protect me and support me. But if I do what Iran says, even if it goes wrong, Iran's gonna come and protect me. So the incentive structure is, do what Iran asks you to do. This protest movement is changing that incentive dynamic, and there is an opportunity for the, for the United States, but also for, for Europe and other, inter and, and other actors to go intervene and change that incentive structure so Iraqis can actually behave in the best interest of Iraq and the Iraqi citizens. Yes, sir. Uh, two questions. What are and I'll be more brief in my answers, I promise. What are Iran's intentions in Iraq? And two, uh, what are the prospects for their life? Thank you. Iran, Iran, Iran wears two hats. You've all heard like Iran needs to make up its mind. Is it a cause or is it a state? Well, when it treats Iraq, it's both. It's a cause. It wants to export the revolution, to export its own form of governance, uh, the form of Islamic Republic. Uh, but also um, shape, like color, like at times, you know, driving through Baghdad felt like driving through Tehran. You know, so many sectarian flags and, and just that's sort of exporting the model. Uh, but also the role of militias, infiltrating the, 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 uh, the militias, making sure that the militias have the upper hand.
vis-à-vis uh, -vis the Iraqi state and the Iraqi the formal Iraqi security forces. So that is the cause aspect uh, of, uh, of Iraq, of, of Iran in Iraq. But of course, part of that is also using Iraq as a launching pad for attacks on Saudi Arabia, and that's not theory. The drone that blew up an Ira uh, a Saudi Arabian uh, oil pipeline uh, flew out of Iraq. Uh, there were there were army uh, sorry arms depots that were targeted by quote unquote unknown uh, warplanes. Reports say that they were Israeli. Uh, they were uh, long range missiles that Iran has stored in Iraq in order to, you know, probably be launched from Iraq toward, you know, Israel, toward Saudi Arabia, toward Iraq's neighbors. Uh, so that is the part about, about exporting the revolution, exporting the cause, and also instilling and in, in, in empowering uh, people that, uh, um, that are loyal to Iran. But Iran also acts very much state-like in Iraq in the following way. Remember that between 80 and 88, Iran and Iraq fought a brutal war. A million people died in that war. A strong Iraq that poses a challenge that can fight Iran again, Iran doesn't want that. Iran acts as a state to make sure that my, my neighbor will never stand on his feet ever again to be able to challenge me. That's one. Iran acts as a state to make sure that there is a market for uh, its exports. Being under sanction, having difficulty of exporting its products, Iraq has become a clearing market for Iranian products. There was a, there was a sign uh, that a protester in Tahrir Square uh, uh, lifted, and it has a picture of, uh, uh, in Arabic it's called Ibrij. It's, uh, it's, it's the, the thing that you, you water plants with, right? Uh, the pot with the thingy that comes out, put water in it. Now, in Iraqi toilets, that's what's used for, you know, for, for, for flushing and cleaning. So uh, the sign read, an Iraqi government that in 15 years hasn't manufactured in a breach, hasn't manufactured a, a water pot, is basically hopeless. But, but one reason why Iraq doesn't have a plastic industry, like imagine a petro state that has all of the petroleum, which is the raw material, why wouldn't you have a plastic industry? Well, one reason is because Iran's plastic industry is, is, is prevalent, it's cheaper, it's subsidized, and when some people in Iraq, when Iraqi entrepreneurs have gone to get licenses for a petrochemical uh, plant or a plastic plant, uh, they, don't get they, they don't get those licenses. Agriculture sector suffers in Iraq because Iranian agriculture is subsidized and the people in government with close to Iran make sure that the regulations to protect Iraqi agriculture are not put in place. So Iran very much acts as a state in order to um, undermine uh, rising enterprise uh, in Iraq. And if you're a Shia in Basra or in Najaf or in Karbala, you are suffering from that. So Iran basically wants you to just aspire to the sectarian identity, I'm Shia, you're Shia, but meantime, I'm going to make sure that you don't have an industry. A pollster told me, I'll, I'll conclude with this, an Iraqi pollster told me that he polled mothers in Basra. What is the number one worry of mothers in Basra? Narcotics. Drugs. Drugs. Where do drugs come from? 
from Iran. So those are a few of the reasons why the Iraqi society, why Iran might have won uh, the political class, but it really lost the Iraqi society, the Shia society in particular. Uh, and that's why I think this is qualitatively, a qualitatively different protest movement. As for the Kurds, um, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan remains the most stable part of Iraq, politically and socially and economically, and also the most prosperous part of Iraq. Uh, the protests that Iraq is going through, Kurdistan had its own fair share of that, but the political leaders you know, woke up uh, to it, they cleaned up house, the corruption uh, still exists, but much better than it is in, 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 in the rest of Iraq. In Iraq, you have 200 political parties who fight over the cake. In Kurdistan, there are two. So, uh, fewer mouths to feed, I guess. Uh, Iraqi Kurdistan tried to separate from Iraq in 2017 in an independence referendum that didn't go well because it did not garner the international support that uh, the Kurds dreamed of, and it drew the ire of Tehran, Ankara, and Baghdad, and it resulted in the Iraqi army rolling in tanks on, on Kurdistan for the first time since uh, 1991, and in, in quite um, uh, disrespect to the constitution that says that the Iraqi army should not be used in internal political affairs. Uh, but when the United States, I mean, the goal was that the United States would, would come to the aid and to the support of the, of the Kurds, of the KRG, uh, obviously, the United States clearly told the <coughs> KRG leadership that the United States does not support the referendum. But uh, it, was a, it was a post-ISIS movement, it was a new president in town here, so they said we're just going to create facts on the ground and have the United States face the music. It had worked in the past, for example, that's how the oil industry, the Kurdish oil industry was created. They was opposed it, but they said, Here's oil, and here's an oil pipeline. Would you like that oil to go to the international markets? <laughs> you know, you can oppose it or not. And so in creating status quo, imposing status quo, uh, has usually worked. And uh, they thought that the KRG leadership thought that they could have a, a similar movement with the independence referendum. It didn't work out so well. And the Kurds are still bitter about it, but they're trying to move on. Uh, they had a good deal in 2018 with the Iraqi government in which, because the KRG went through economic hardship after ISIS, uh, but the oil keeps flowing, money from Baghdad keeps coming, and uh, there's a new government that seems to be, um, it's new, so it has made big promises about fighting corruption and promoting private sector and diversifying the economy, and I think the business community and the Kurdish citizens are giving it a chance. And I could have gone to Syria, but I think we're sticking with Iraq now. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid you triggered me with the emphasis on corruption. Uh, I'm of the view that we Americans are far too puritanical about corruption in most of the world. That the real choices in most countries, that most countries are run primarily as patronage networks and loyalty to the patronage network rather than civic loyalty which takes a secondary place. And the alternative to that is one based on a fanatical extremist regime which does have civic loyalty but of a horrible kind. Uh, this seems to me very much the case in most of the Middle East, excepting possibly the Kurdish areas, and then only because they used to be extremists, and after the end of the Soviet Union, they put that aside, but kept the discipline, it seems. Uh, so my question is, can we envisage a more moderate, functional 
patronage regime in Iraq, which distributes the benefits, which I think is the only way to run the country without tyranny. Uh, or uh, is there any such viable model that you can envisage? So I talked quite a bit about freedom. Freedom. Yeah. And I blotted the freedom that Iraqis have experienced and are experiencing. But one freedom that is still missing in Iraq, so you have freedom of speech, uh, you have, and when I say you have freedom of speech, there are curtailments as well, like the, one of the things that the Iraqi government did at the protest movement was to shut down the internet and storm and send like thugs to storm uh, TV stations. But you still have a very vibrant media landscape in Iraq. In Iraq, you can speak your mind, unless you're Ahmad al-Bashir, the Iraqi political satirist, uh, who's like a, like a nomad or a gypsy of Iraqi TVs. He jumped so many TVs, Iraqi stations, that the poor fella ended up uh, running to Jordan. And now he airs his, his show on Deutsche Welle, on the German-Arabic TV station. So with all the caveats and murdering journalists, you still, I can still say that Iraq has a vibrant uh, media landscape where there are serious debates and disagreements and sometimes fistfights. <laughs> so you have that. I would also say that Iraq has political freedom. You can be a communist in Iraq. Actually, the Communist Party in Iraq is part of the coalition. It's actually in alliance with Muqtada al-Sadr. I, I think that's pretty, as far as a story goes. However, and you have, you have liberals, and you have you know, uh, conservatives, and you have sectarian parties, and, and you have, uh, you know, you have political freedom in Iraq. You also have, to a great extent, religious freedom in Iraq. Lots of problems, caveats, but I'm, I'm making a, a more important point. The one freedom that Iraqis have not experienced is economic freedom. Iraq is an oil country. The only form of government, the only form of economic governance that Iraqis know, let alone the Iraqi government and the political elite knows, is state-controlled uh, economies. It's, it's socialism, the socialist DNA of the Ba'ath Party. The Ba'ath Party's full name is the Iraq, the Hizb al-Ba'ath al-Arab al-Ishtiraqi, the Arab Socialist uh, Ba'ath or, or, or re Rebirth uh, Party. That's the official name of the party. So when a new generation comes in, that's the only form of government they know. So it's all about equal distribution. Who is, who is fairer? Who is more equitable and more just in the distribution system? It's not about let's come up with a better economic system. And in fact, that's also one of the stark differences between KRG and the rest of Iraq. In Iraq, in, 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 in the KRG, you have you know, more consolidated power, and the trickle-down works better. But even that patronage system, you know, faced, you know, the music in 2014 when uh, the Iraqi government stopped the, the flow of oil, and then all of a sudden they realized that selling oil means you have cash flow. But it doesn't mean you have an economy, because having money in your pocket doesn't equal having financial security. And all of a sudden people realized, that, oh, there's a difference between having money and having an economy. Uh, because it's like you know, blood going through the system. That's not necessarily, it's, it's a condition of health, but that's not the only condition to health. So economic freedom is missing. 
It's missing in the, in the education. Like for example, the first time I ever took an economic class was when I came to this country and did a graduate class uh, during my master's program. If you can go from elementary school all the way to a PhD in Iraqi education system and you would never take an econ class unless your, your degree is in economics. While here, you know, my daughter uh, took classes about finance and banking and interest rates in middle school. And she's taking another class in high school. Iraqi school system doesn't have any classes about econ. So economic and financial literacy is not there. So therefore, it's not part of the, the demand. When the people say we want a better government, it's more about someone who is more just and more equitable about distributing that oil revenue. What Iraqi, what Iraq needs, and this is a debate, it's not a public or a populist debate, but at least people with the right mind know that what Iraq really needs is economic freedom. And the government is literally unable to create jobs just by you know, producing more secretary jobs or bureaucrat jobs or people with a stamp who sign you know, to get a driver's license. You need like 12 stamps. One minister was uh, like bragging about reducing the number of stamps from 12 to 7. So to get rid of this, you have to create a private sector. You have to promote entrepreneurship. You have to have banking. You have to create the ability of people of going and you know, borrowing money from angel investors, not just pulling in uh, family money. And all of that has happened, but there's a ceiling to family money and friends money and the neighborhood money. At some point, you need to diversify the economy because an oil-based economy is by default volatile. You know, the oil prices at the tank changes every day. That's, that reflects the global oil prices. So imagine if your economy goes up and down with that. So that's one realization of the, of the Iraqi leaders. Uh, but there is also the question of uh, creating jobs because the oil sector does not create jobs. I'll give you an example of Saudi Arabia. The oil accounts for 90% of Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia's government. Guess what percent of the Saudi population works in the oil and gas sector? And by the way, that's the most advanced oil and gas sector in, in the world. 1.6%. So accounts for 90% of government revenue but only employs 1.6%. So oil is not going to hire people. You have to find jobs outside the government sector and outside the oil sector for people to work. And once you think in terms of economic freedom, then remember how I said as a minister, I say, I signed the oil contract. I, I cash the oil check. What do you want? Why should I give you some of that money? If, if, if we change the dynamic and we think about economic liberty, then all of a sudden I don't see the population, my citizens, as a burden, as people who are eyeing the money that I made, but I see them as engines of economic prosperity. And that is the paradigm shift that Iraq hasn't, hasn't done yet. Ah, okay, the mic is here, sorry. Yes, sir. Yes, I want to thank you, first of all, for a very intelligent and uh, heartfelt You're very kind, thank you. rendition of what is going on there. I appreciate your insights very much. My particular interest is in your being a Kurd and your being Iraqi. Okay? The Kurdish population in Iraq is pan-Kurdish. It, it has neighbors to the east, neighbors to the west, neighbors to the north right. of blood not just of politics, right. okay? And my interest is knowing your perception of 
what, how Kurds feel toward the central government that is an amalgam of disparate parts and their loyalty and adherence to their Kurdish ethnicity uh, that is pan-Kurdish, mm -hmm. that spans uh, borders uh, throughout the region, and whether this is something that can uh, have a history lesson for us and also have an insight lesson for us uh, looking toward the future. Where the loyalty, where the, the, uh, the, uh, the focus of the Kurd population in Iraq is, mm -hmm. is it Iraqi, is it Kurdish, is there hope, is there lessons to be learned, are there lessons to be learned, and um, what is the future likely to, uh, to hold for us there? Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, let me not give you, I mean, I write about that very question. But let me not give you a, a think tanky intellectual answer. I'll give you a personal answer, like my own journey of answering that particular question. Okay. I think every Kurd that I know wants a state. The Middle East is a Hobbesian place, and uh, you look around, and you could be as evil as Saddam Hussein and kill 180,000 of your own Kurds and gas them, but you're a state, you can get away with it. Uh, but maybe we didn't know. How about Bashar al-Assad? We know what happens. We actually watch the bombs drop and we watch the kid die and we watch the thousands of people flee but Syria is a country, and Bashar al-Assad, you know, is the head of the state, and state sanctity, and so he killed half a million of his own citizens, and almost half of the population lives outside of Syria, and where does he stand today? Is he losing power? Is he losing legitimacy? Quite the opposite. Uh, the Arab countries are re-engaging uh, Bashar al-Assad, and uh, he might as well regain his seat at the, uh, at the Arab League. Uh, Syria never lost its seat at the United Nations. The message there is that it doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. It's about whether you're a state or not. And the Kurds look back at the past century and they say that, you know, any time Kurdish rights contradict a state, the Kurds always end up with the shorter end of the stick. My own attitude about the referendum was that uh, Iraqi Kurds have something good going for them in Iraq. They have an independent economy. They're basically running a semi-autonomous uh, country. Uh, an academic, uh, Denise Natali, who now works for the State Department, called it the quasi-state. And for those of you who have traveled to Kurdistan, it, is, it has all the looks and feels of an independent state. You land in an airport, you get a visa at the airport, uh, you can use the Iraqi dinar or the US dollar, and uh, like imagine, if, if you want to go to Baghdad, you have to get a visa approved on your stamp, apply like month, two months in advance, but not in Kurdistan. And there are 
two American universities in Kurdistan and I mean I was teaching in one of them and the compound, the apartment complex where, where I, I, I used to live was the second largest concentration of Americans after the American embassy. And today with the, with the order departure there are probably more Americans at the American university than at the US embassy. And they had their own foreign affairs. In Washington, you have an Iraqi embassy and you have a, an office of KRG representation. So, except for a, a Kurdish currency, and uh, I guess that's it, except for a Kurdish currency, uh, the KRG was, you know, all the state but in name. And I thought that the independence referendum was just pushing it, and there's something good going on. And perhaps, uh, for now, that's, that should be the limit of Kurdish aspirations. Now, I prefaced all of this by saying, I think in the, in the blood of every Kurd is a desire for statehood. And I even wrote about this. And the question of transnational Kurdish movement and pan-Kurdish identity, uh, you know, there, the, there are sort of words about the greater Kurdistan and bringing all of the parts of Kurdistan together. Just as a brief note, the Kurds are the largest ethnic group in the Middle East without a state. Uh, divided uh, in, in, in order of, of, of numbers and population, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. Iraqi Kurds have been self-governing since 1992. Uh, Syrian Kurds have built a, an autonomous region um, basically since 2011 or 2012. Uh, Turkey is a whole different uh, question. Until recently, Kurds that, that were not even recognized as a people in Turkey. But then, with some reforms in the Turkish government, they're now granted um, the right to exist. That Kurdish is not just a dialect of Turkish, it's actually a separate language. And these are guys are not just Turks who speak weird, but they're actually Kurdish. It's a different ethnic group. And they're allowed to have a TV and a political party. And of course, unfortunately, some of those rights are being gradually taken away from them. Uh, in Iran, the Kurds are double cursed. They're not Persian, and they're not Shia. So they, they have greater cultural rights, but uh, uh, no Kurdish is not taught in school. You cannot study Kurdish in school. You go, your kids go to school, uh, the whole education system in Farsi. And uh, it was actually only uh, a few years ago that for the first time, Kurds were allowed to become mayors and governors. Because in a Kurdish town, you had to import uh, a Persian mayor or a Persian governor from a Persian town. So th that was just as a, as, as a way of background. Of, of where the Kurds are and, and why the question of status is important. So I'm the one who, uh, I had a piece in the, in the Washington Post, basically argue that maybe this <coughs> dream of bringing all of the Kurds together in one mega Kurdish state uh, is probably uh, too unrealistic for the Middle East. You know, you have 21 Arab countries and if Nasser and Saddam could not manage to, you know, merge at least two of them together, I don't think the Kurds should be in the business of creating a mega Kurdistan. So how about two Kurdistans? So I wrote like two Kurdistans are better than one. Um, and so arguing that Iraqi Kurds should manage their own affairs and Syrian Kurds should manage their own affairs. And what's wrong with having two Kurdish statelets? And as I said, I thought that the referendum, the independence referendum of the KRG was too ambitious. But then I'm, I'm changing my mind after the Turkish invasion of Syria. Because Syrian Kurds, they didn't want a state. They never asked for a state. Actually, they, they, all they wanted is to self-govern. And uh, Syrian Kurds, the YPG, is not even nationalist like Iraqi Kurds are. They just said, 
you know, we're here, we have some ideas about how to run the economy and how to run the, you know, some books by, you know, Mr. Bokchin, who Abdullah Ojalan read, and we just want to have an experience, an experiment here. No grandiose, you know, plans and no, uh, no ideas about changing the Syrian map. They recognize Syria, they recognize the territory of, of, of Syria. But, you know, and there is no one to rule here anyways, so we're actually doing a good job, and this part that we rule is the safest, most secure, most liberal, most diverse part of Syria. And not only is it safe and, and diverse, but you know, Christians are part of the government and the Armenians are part of the government and we Kurds were not allowed to use our language, but we're using, we're allowing everyone to teach in their own language, teach their kids however they like. And um, while we're at it, we're gonna help the international community to fight ISIS and we're willing to lose 11,000 uh, killed for it. And in return for losing 11,000, all we want is for that 150 American troops to just stick around because those, that Turkish army really wants to come and cause us harm. And that was too much to ask. And so that's why I said I'm changing my mind that maybe in this Middle East, it's not enough to be the good guy. It's not enough to be the Democrat, to be the liberal, to be the open-minded or to be the pro-West because all of that is not going to uh, you know, provide you the protection that you need because when the Turkish army invaded immediately um, um, 18,000 uh, Kurdish people just fled their homes. Uh, sorry, 16,000 just went to the KRG and 160,000 fled their homes. Uh, so I'm, I'm just, I, I can't help compare what the states do and get away with and how the Kurds get uh, the shorter end of the, of the stick anytime that the geopolitical chessboard uh, has to be reshaped somehow. Now, having said that, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being too pessimistic. The Kurds are doing much better today than, than they were you know, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, Iraqi Kurds have agency. They were kingmakers in Iraq. Iraqi Kurds have a Peshmerga, have an economy. They run their own people. Kurdish language has, has had a renaissance. There are Kurdish TV, Kurdish literature, uh, schools, universities. Uh, Syrian Kurds have, have Agency, I mean, I just can ask you, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, have you ever heard of Syrian Kurds? Did you even know who they were, what they were doing? So there is awareness for the first time when the U.S. makes a policy that hurts the Kurds. You know, uh, President Trump was never opposed by Republicans except for when he, he betrayed the Kurds. Uh, so you have that public sentiment, and I think that is a great investment, and maybe someday it will pay off. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Maybe I may not have the time. You may not have I agree And I'm, I'm, I'm horrible at giving short answers. Yeah, I just okay. give long oh. answers. Uh, no. I'm a university professor uh, by okay, training, yeah. so I can't help. Uh, I, I talk for a living. Okay, uh, there you go. Uh, the Kurds in Iraq uh, are about, what, five million? Well, it's about six now, yes. Uh, yeah. Five to six. Actually, the, the correct answer is we wife, don't know. It was at that time. Yes. Five. They are getting now 17% of the Iraqi, not the time with the Iraqi government, 17% um, of the Iraqi revenue. Uh, if we look at the US, there are so many ethnic, religious, and unbelievable groups. And yet, you know, they, we, we all manage to live quite happily in here. Uh, you look at China, same thing. There are a hundred, how many? 
languages and different ethnic groups mm -hmm. in China. Being independent as a, a group, and by the way, I'm probably partly Kurdish. I don't know. We were born near that area. Right. Uh, so that that's not as I think the Iraqi Kurds have always had it very very good in Iraq, and I know that from my father's regime. The, First of all, for now you're talking about how well they have done. It means they also got their revenue now. They got everybody, okay? So I'm very happy for that. But if we look back at Iraq's, bringing Iraq now to the problem that we have, does this, as an academician, does not that remind you of what happened in the French Revolution, the Bastille. Madame de France sat there and, and had everybody's head cut off, okay? She had them one by one. She was, but it went on from Robespierre to Marat to Saad to the weather with whatever. And it went on for a hundred years before right. it finally settled down. Right. Uh, that, I don't know why I feel that as an Iraqi, or an old Iraqi, <laughs> since I never really lived there very long. I was very young when I came. Um, and my father was involved in that uh, right. thing. And got imprisoned because he was accused of making talks with uh, Barzani, with Al-Mullah. Yeah, so he, Saddam put him in jail for two years. So it doesn't matter. What I'm trying to say is, Maybe, just maybe, that time and uh, help, whatever it comes, uh, it took a hundred years for the French Revolution, but it was a revolution. Right. And actually, the revolution started in 58, and it, it got interrupted. Hmm. And then, now we are where? What, what do you think? I'm smiling because today is the second time that the French Revolution comes up in a conversation about the, um, the Iraqi up, uh, uprising. So uh, perhaps we're up to something. Uh, I, I share your fear. Um, I definitely share your fear. And that's why I said earlier that the Iraqi political leadership has an opportunity to reform and to realize that whatever perks they have been enjoying for the past 15 years must change now. I don't, I don't imagine that they will reform themselves out of a job, but they have a choice of turning this into a French Revolution style or steering it in the right direction. And I think that's why there is a role for the international community to play, because in Iraq, uh, it's so black and white right now. A political class that wants to weather it by killing the protesters and uh, kidnapping them and staying in power, and a population that seems to have very little to lose. That's why they're so relentless and they're not giving up because they know they're riding a tiger. And you know, if you're riding a tiger, you should not get off. And so how do we break the stalemate? I think there is a role for, for the international community to play. Otherwise, we perhaps end up in, the, in those dark scenarios. Uh, if you're talking about dark, dark scenarios, there is another dark scenario of a... Uh, of, uh, a return to a military dictatorship where a militia leader can emerge and take control and say, you know, in the name of stability and security. I mean, isn't that how many of this, well, a few of the Arab Spring countries were undermined and the hopes were, um, were, were 
were ended, you know, or, or uh, prematurely. Uh, but I'm still hopeful for Iraq. I think, uh, I think Iraqis have tasted freedom, and they just want a better democracy, a democracy that works for them and not for the political class. So I remain optimistic. I remain optimistic about what I hear from the people in Tahrir Square, uh, from the youth. Some, some of them are my own students who basically have the skills, have the language, have the worldview. They just look around and they just cannot translate their own country in their own language. And they just want a country that makes sense to them. They want a, a political leadership that can speak their language and tell them a, sell them a future that they can believe in. And that's what they're demanding. And I think if this political class is unable to provide that, then this leader, this young movement is going to become that leadership rather than demand a better behavior from its own leadership. And so that's why I remain uh, quite cautiously optimistic. So. Let's take it. Thank you.